Do you see what I see? Said the preacher to the people everywhere. Do you see what I see? Truth is, you don't. You don't see what I see. Now, some of you right now are probably either putting it together or are thoroughly confused. This is my, my wife, who almost 32 years ago at that time was just someone that I had made a, a, a rather bold statement, um, will you marry me? And her, in a moment of weakness, said yes. Uh, I, I don't know what your, uh, for those of you that are married, I don't know what your engagement party was like. I, I do remember one of Andrea's sisters crying and leaving the room saying, you're ruining your life, you don't know what you're doing. Maybe because she was 18 at the time. But we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> do, you, do you see what I see? And the answer is, I guarantee you, you, you probably could look at that and go, she's pretty. You don't see what I see, though. That, that literally there is, is a, a moment in time. It, it captures a moment in time. But for me... That's my wife. That's my bride. And although I, I really do rather enjoy, I've spent a lot of time reflecting on a lot of things over the last week or so, and looking at this picture, and it, it means so much more than just a pretty face. There are times and struggles that we have had, and, and there are moments where mostly she puts up with me, but in all honesty, that we put up with each other. I think it's good for moments like this to be reminded of and mindful of. Bold statements like, I promise until death do us part. Um, I, I love the fact that marriage is both simultaneously an ideal and a way up here. And a reality, sometimes just way down here. And it's both. It's good to think about that and to reflect on that, that even as I stand here and say, do you see what I see? Like, you really can't. It's like impossible. Because of all of the thoughts and all of the memories and all of the experiences, it literally is impossible for you to know her and to love her, like not just with your heart, but with all of you, the way that I do. We are starting a series today on the church. And for seven weeks, we are going to be looking at different um, metaphors, analogies of what it actually looks like to be the people of God, to be the church, and today we're looking at what it actually means to be the bride. I just couldn't help but reflect, so especially speaking just for a moment to those of you that are ladies in the room, just how many times when, when, when analogies and biblical passages come up, and, and they just do, right? Just They come from a male perspective. Isn't today kind of like a good day for you? 
where like your husband or your brother or your dad has to sit here and to think about what it likes to be a beautiful bride. How interesting that truly the analogies for who we are and what we are about bring joy and even like there is some hard work that is necessary for every one of us to to imagine ourselves as that. Like only in church could a young man grow up just dreaming to be the perfect bride. How fitting. It can bring, for me it has, brought joy and uh, imagination. It, it is humbling for me to think about I don't know if you remember, maybe this happened, especially for those of you that are in college or are younger, like there was a book that came out in 2003 called The Da Vinci Code. Do you remember this or have heard about it? Dan Brown, not out through any kind of historical verification or even some kind of theological, uh, you know, hard thinking, uh, came up with the book. And uh, one of the major premises of the book is, is that Jesus Christ was in fact married and she had a name. Her name was Mary Magdalene. And they took that figure in the Bible and kind of crafted this amazing story of mystery and intrigue, of conspiracy. And the idea was that Jesus was, in fact, married, that the account that we have is really not the only account. And what they mean by that is the reliable account and that the church, you know the church, um, they suppressed the truth that Jesus Christ was, in fact, married, that Mary was his wife, and that they had two children together. Again, there was no theological underpinnings. There was no historical verification. It was just kind of an idea. And, and I even understood, disagreed with, but understood the fascination with the idea. I remember thinking about it and hearing people talk about it. And, and honestly, just kind of from my gut, my first statement was, no, he wasn't. And again, maybe I want to try to pretend that I was thinking rationally about it or historically about it, but I was also responding to it emotionally and emotively. No, he wasn't. Why, why are you so defensive about this one, Jim? As I've thought about just where my defensiveness was coming from, it wasn't just that it had no historical reliability or textual proof. I just couldn't imagine Jesus being married. <laughs> After all, if he was going to marry, what kind of woman would he select? You know what it's like. You've had the thought. Right? It's either an engagement or maybe even on the wedding day, and you think to yourself, maybe even say it out loud, he could have done better, you know. Right? Have you had that thought? Now, maybe more consistently, it goes something like this. Wow, she decided to settle. Again, hopefully it stays up here and doesn't come out here. But you know the thought. You've had it. So if Jesus is in fact going to marry, what kind of woman would it be? Maybe we think for a moment, I, I bet you it's someone like his mother. Someone that God would select for a reason. We, we know she was not perfect. But she was some way chosen for a reason and she was in fact blessed and the angel even said and everyone from now on will refer to you as blessed and chosen by God 
And so maybe, you know, again, we understand that whoever Jesus would marry, he had to have to in some way settle, but clearly she's got to be, what, amazing. And I guess I just couldn't believe that there was anyone, including my own special bride, that was ever that amazing. And so I guess I just couldn't imagine Jesus settling And yet the Bible actually makes it very clear that he did, in fact, settle. That he did, in fact, make very bold statements about to love and to honor in all circumstances. In in fact, um, I, I don't know if anyone has ever made the statements about being married with their eyes wide open. There is a sense in which all of us put on our best selves Somehow, through not speaking the truth and and making sure that we dress a certain way and speak a certain way so that we are loving and winsome, and and the guard slowly comes down. We we call it that honeymoon period, right, which starts long before the honeymoon, where you're just very, very careful and intentional and strategic about who you present yourself to be. Don't want to scare them off. And yet Jesus, when he said, will you marry me, knew exactly what he was getting into. There was no surprise or there was no pretense. There was no mask that she could ever wear that Jesus couldn't see behind. And he looked at her. You. Us. And still dared to say, will you be mine? I pledged myself to you. Isn't that amazing that he understood fully who you are, perfectly who you are, and still said, I choose you. Boy, to be chosen, or worse yet, to not be chosen, can just make all the difference in the world. I was once talking, actually, to a young man, and he was probably too young uh, to be even involved in any kind of relationship, but, you know, he was probably in junior high at the time, and so he thought he had a good good grasp on relationships, And I just kind of asked him, because I had heard that he was seeing so-and-so, and and he wasn't seeing so-and-so, he was now seeing whatchamacallit. And I said to him, hey, why the the change? And boy, oh boy, the first young lady that you were spending some special time with, how's she doing with the change? And he said, oh, she gets it, she understood. And it was one of those moments where I just remember thinking to myself, I had no idea what I was doing when I was younger. He said, can you tell me what it happened? And he basically said, yeah, I just explained to this first young lady that I was seeing that I no longer liked her, that I liked somebody else. And it was like for the first time in my life, I could understand what those words could be like. Even though I'd heard them to myself, but I'm grown up now. And I just said to him, he still didn't get it, but I just said to him, let me see if I can get this straight. There's a young 13, 14-year-old girl somewhere that now knows you intentionally chose someone else and not her. Do you remember that feeling? 
That does not feel good. It, it, it is one of the most like um, em- embarrassing. It, it's it's like a stripping away, isn't it, of our identity, of our of ourselves. And you wonder why we're running around trying to find someone who will love us and accept us. And then really wonder if they mean it. If they are going to, in fact, choose someone else. Walk away. I remember him telling me, she understands how this works. And I just thought, wow, that's even sadder. Isn't it beautiful that when God enters in, when God chooses us, he does so in that covenant knowing full well who we are. And maybe that's why even we wonder, does he really know me? We wonder, has he really forgiven me? We wonder, does he really love me? And I'm here to say to you this morning, the answer to that question is yes. An unadulterated yes. An eternal yes. I love you. And and you really get the rest of your life to just live from, to live out of that pledge, that union. And that's why I think it's good for us to to realize that when Jesus Christ says, I love you, I I don't know if you want to agree with this, but a number of years ago we were going through a series on what marriage was like. It was really taken from the perspective not of Jesus and the church. It was talking about Jim and Andrea. It was talking about you and your bride or you and your potential groom or potential bride. It was really a, a series designed to just help us to be Better Husbands and Wives. And in that, I I read a number of different books. And one of those books that I read was by a writer that I have really been blessed by named Tim Keller. He was quoting another person named Stanley Hauervoss who said something that when I first read it, I thought, oh, wow, that's really true. It it really did. At first, I wanted to argue with him, and then he ended up convincing me. And it, it went like this. The idea was this, that when we first fall in love, when, when we first have the feelings that interrupt and disturb our hearts and our stomachs. That what we are really feeling is not this outward adoration of this other person. What we are really doing in the earliest stages of love and admiration, of infatuation, what we really are responding to is how that other person makes us feel about us. That's what love is. Really? And the more that I reflected on that, yeah, that's true. I think that's why we all kind of go into it with our eyes somewhat closed, somewhat dimly. Because in the end, what really kind of drew me to Andrea was I really felt good inside when I looked at her. Like the way that she talked with me and, and truly as I began to go back and to reflect about how I respond, I mean, without time and without difficulty and without the full truth, literally the initial stages are nothing more than how 
you make me feel about me. I'm not saying that so that you might feel like guilt or shame or aren't you a selfish person. It probably is the only human way that we can respond initially. And especially for those of us that are, are doomed or are imprisoned by the way that we think about love where it is just this emotive response. I, I think that's why we, we need to grow up, not, not from, but to grow up and it becomes more than just how Andrea makes me feel about me, but it moves beyond that. It's that, but it moves beyond that, where all of a sudden it is for richer and poorer and sickness and health and better and worse. It moves beyond it. And so what I love about God and what I love about Jesus are the one who is, is ours, is the fact that when Jesus selected us, he didn't select us the way that we select one another. It's hard for us to get our heads around. Here's a very deep theological truth, and I'll put it in very simple terms. Jesus loves us. Jesus loves his bride freely. Jesus never has thought this moment, or this thought. He's never for a moment thought this. You complete me. You remember hearing that line? And just thinking to yourself, oh. We don't complete him. He is complete. And so he loves us freely. There is no um, outward compulsion that is impressed upon him. No, he, he looks at you. And, and that is why, with God particularly, you can let your guard down. It's not just that he knows you. It's that he knows you and loves you. It's not just that he is aware of the ugly truth about you. It's that he is aware of that truth and he still loves you and cares about you. And so the guard can go down. The defenses can go down. The transparency can go up. The honesty and the joy then respond correspondingly up. Because why? Because God knows the truth and he still says, will you be mine? And, and that is why it's interesting that this is just not, an, it's not just a New Testament idea. We find this idea in the Old Testament. Right? We, we find this. Um, the last time there was a, a bridal gown on this stage was when we were preaching through a series on Hosea. Do you know the story of Hosea? And what I love about that is, is that's what we were preaching about, and we're talking about the bride of Christ, and this is the beauty of church, is the church, you can feel like this, oh, that's who I am, and oh, God loves me, all in the same moment. It is one of the most humbling and joyful, it is one of the most exposing and yet reassuring experiences. It's the joy of not just coming to church, but being the church. In Hosea chapter 1, and by the way, if you don't know the story, um, the story is, sounds a lot like her name, Gomer. Do you know Gomer? I don't know Gomer. I literally have never met anyone. What's your name? My name's Gomer. You're the first one I've ever met named Gomer. Gomer and Jezebel, they just never make the list, do they? I just want to have a daughter named Gomer. No, love your child and do not do that. In Hosea chapter 1, it speaks about the unfaithfulness. It speaks about the adultery, idolatry of Gomer, about the people of Israel. It's interesting 
how there's the truth. There's the truth. There's the truth about the people of God. There's the truth about the church. The Bible isn't afraid to speak the truth about our brokenness and God's love, about our sinfulness and God's mercy. In fact, they, they just weirdly fit. Hosea chapter 2, which means all the whorish activities of Gomer, are very apparent. And yet, this is what the groom, what God says. I will take you, Gomer, to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion Isn't it interesting? Think of those words, righteousness and justice and love and compassion. Isn't it interesting that they fit almost beautifully, almost out of necessity together? Righteousness and compassion. Justice, I hear a lot about that. And love. We want to talk about one or the other. Even, in fact, you and I, we we move from righteousness to love and, and from justice to compassion. But do you realize that when God does, he does all of those things simultaneously. God doesn't act sometimes loving and then sometimes compassionate and sometimes he's righteous and sometimes he's... No, he is simultaneously righteous and just and loving and compassionate all at the same time towards us. He says in verse 20, I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness. After all the truth about her has already been exposed. Do you know who you're marrying? And God is truly the only one who can say yes. You you can't surprise him. You do know that she, I know better than you do, God would say. For all your thoughts about the bride of Christ. God, do you know that? And God says, yeah. You can't inform me of anything. I love her. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. And God does this. Jesus does this freely. Honestly, the reason that he does this freely, what that does to you and I, is it confirms that he will then always love us. There is no fickleness. I know that in all of the relationships that you've ever seen or that you've ever, you see fickleness, you see back and forth, you see a yes with a no, but with God, it is just an eternal yes. With God, it is just eternal faithfulness. And I know that you doubt that and you wonder about that, but the beauty of it is since he doesn't do it out of an emptiness within himself and he doesn't do it because someone is forcing him that he never wonders if he chose properly, he never wonders if he made a mistake, you might. And I promise you, she does. But he, God, Jesus, our groom, never does. And how does he look at us? I want us to look at just verse 14 of that Ezekiel text. And it's interesting. I had to try to figure out in that Ezekiel 16 where I kind of draw the line. I decided at verse 8. But you read the stuff before that, and then you read a couple of chapters later about what the people of God are like, what the bride of God is actually like. And it is shocking. Shocking. Some of the most difficult texts are the previous verses in Ezekiel 16 and a few chapters later. It is just um, shocking. 
And look at what he says in verse 14, how God speaks of her. I don't know if this is how you speak about the people of God. How many of you have heard this statement? You know, I don't know if I like the church, but I absolutely love Jesus. Have anybody heard that statement before? Yeah, I don't know if I'm into the church, but I'm totally into Jesus. I do know one person that couldn't even think that thought, and his name is Jesus. And interestingly enough, when when people say that, and I've I've had a few people say this to me, and I get what they're saying. I get it. They want to talk about the the brokenness, and they want to talk about all the terrible history. I get it. I'm aware of it. It's not like you're you're not, hear me, you might be able to inform me about a few things, but I've actually heard the rumors that she's kind of, you know, a mess. But that's not how Jesus sees her. Verse 14 actually says, and your fame spread among the nations because of your beauty. Do you see what I see? And I'm not talking about Andrea, I'm talking about Jesus' bride. Do you see what he sees? Because here he talks about her as beautiful. And then look at how she is beautiful. This is, this is, this is so biblical. You are beautiful for your beauty. He's talking about that. For it, your beauty was perfected through my splendor, which I bestowed on you. This is the declaration of the Lord. You're beautiful because I have made you beautiful. Don't call God ignorant or blind or foolish. That truly, the beauty of the bride of Christ, the beauty of the people of God has always been, kind of come from and been out of his own splendor and his own beauty. And and we find joy in that because he has chosen to love us freely. So then what does that do to us? And this is what I also enjoy about the Bible is just, there's just no way for us to ever separate. I know we want to. I know it's easy for us to try to separate Jesus from his bride. I know it's sometimes even more comfortable for us to, to try to somehow split my relationship with God from my relationship with others. But the Bible says you can't do it. The Bible says that not only is that cheating, he says it's impossible You can't split your relationship with God from your relationship with those around you, and especially as part of the church. I want you to hear me, especially for those of you that are younger, that are in college. I keep looking over in this direction, but I'm sure there's some of you that are over here too. That as you think about the opportunities that you're going to be having over the next four, three, two, can you believe you're a senior this year? It's important for you to remember that the the, the relationships that you form and the attitudes that you have about the bride of Christ are going to set in motion a series of decisions that will either draw you closer to Christ or lead you away from him. I promise you that there is just no way that you could ever have a genuine and a real and a growing um, and a deepening relationship with me while at the same time having no interest in my wife. And that's not because I'm like selfish or we think we're the center of the world. By the way, Jesus is the center of the world. It's just because it's a relational impossibility. You get it. I can't pretend I love you and care about you and then not care about the one that you love more than anything else. It's just impossible. And and by the way, please don't pretend that your indifference is anything but unloving. 
Listen, I'm not a hater. Don't want to be that guy. Don't want to be her. I, I just don't know if I care. And that's not loving too. And, and, and when you find yourself embraced by Jesus, when you find yourself joined with him, what we experience, and this is what I love about Jesus, is not only does he say, I love you, whether it's good or whether it's bad, um, every, the, the, the boldest vow I ever made ended with this statement, until death do us part. It recognizes the limitations that both Andrea and I have. By the way, her, more than I, are, are looking forward to the day. We, we talk about this quite a bit. Andrea says, I can't wait. It ought to be interesting on that day when I'm no longer married to you. She's talking about heaven. And again, I don't think she wants out of it, but it's interesting for me to be aware of the fact that as wonderful and as powerful as this is, there will come a day, it really does remind me that she can't complete me and I can't complete her. We can't find our meaning and our purpose even just in each other. There is going to come a time when even this beautiful thing that we call marriage has a lifespan and yet our union with God, our union with Christ goes on forever. Jesus actually was so bold and so wise to say, and I will love you even after death. That's how much he loves us. And he loves us so much that when you begin to understand that, when you begin to appreciate that, you are now truly his bride and finding your identity as the bride of Christ, as the truly, freely loved one of Christ. And to literally, to sit in that and to relish that means that you will be set free to love yourself. And I don't mean love yourself, I mean love from yourself. You'll be able to love God freely because he has freely loved you and he has demonstrated love for you in this, that while you were still sinners... God died for you. Jesus died for you. And now all of a sudden, and this is what the Bible teaches, now all of a sudden, those of us who've experienced that love and that union are now then set free to love like we've been loved. We are now set free. Those of us who've experienced union with Christ are now forgiven by God. This relationship that we now have, and now we are free to forgive we now have experienced it, and so we're now free to help others experience it. No, no longer are we governed by words like fear and anxiety. No longer are we relationally frustrated or angry. I, I would even argue that truly, like fear and anxiousness, relationally speaking, frustration and anger... It comes from someone who really doesn't understand, hasn't really kind of thought through and then what it means to be loved. By the way, don't, don't take my word for that. This is what John writes in 1 John. By the way, 1 John 4 is the love chapter, not 1 Corinthians 13. I know, I don't want to argue with you about this, but the word love appears more square inch in 1 John 4 than anywhere else. And here's how he describes it. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him or her. And in this, love, in, this, in this, love is made complete with us so that we have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, in terms of who Jesus Christ is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. 
Instead, perfect love drives out fear. Because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not in complete love. That's why when you're looking for an identity outside of Christ, you will end up angry and frustrated. You will end up defensive. And that is why if you truly are in Christ, you don't need to be fearful or anxious or angry or defensive. Can you imagine what it would be like if the people of God weren't defensive, but instead were free to live in that confidence? It says in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, if anyone says, I really don't want the church, I just want Jesus, that person is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and his sister. And and by the way, that is why the love of God that we experience then frees us to share that with others. And and it goes even beyond. We, We love God so much and we are so free to love that we learn to bear with one another. We learn to put up with one another. Looking back at this wonderful picture of my wife, do you see what I see? Just the number of times she has not looked like that, and yet I love her. The the number of times that she um, has made it hard to love. Yes, I'm telling you right now, sometimes my wonderful wife is hard to love. And, And by the way, and when I love her, it refines me. In a very, very real way, it teaches me of God's love for me. And and that's what it means to love. Not just where I feel good about me, but where I'm not even thinking about me, and I'm just here for you. It's that kind of love. And, And God says, you can't pretend to have this. Listen, church, you can't pretend to have this if you don't have this. They are inseparable. I'm not trying to make you go to church every Sunday. I used to, when I was a a, a professor, I used to say to my students, don't just go to church, be the church. Be the bride of Christ. And what I really am beginning to find at the very center of that is, is not just trying to be loving towards one another. It is to realize that you are loved and then to experience then from that the freedom and the joy of loving and forgiving and being merciful and kind and confident and winsome. Not only to the other brides of Christ, but to those that we so desperately long to know We want them to experience the love of God. Paul does this in Ephesians chapter 5. I don't know if you've noticed, but in in this section, he he begins to talk about, it sounds like Jim and Andrea. Hey, Jim, what I want you to do is I want you to love Andrea like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, washing her with the word. And then he says to Andrea, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, um, to submit to your husband out of a reverence for Christ. It seems like he's talking to us. And then out of nowhere in verse 32, he actually says, I am actually talking about this profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And I just want to look at him and go, actually, I thought you were talking about me. See what he does? You can't study, think, talk about what God is doing with us 
without recognizing the immediate and the very natural and the responsiveness that we have towards one another. Therefore, I pray that this series not only becomes one of very strong comfort, I hope this morning that, I don't know what you were expecting to get, but I I hope that you will walk away like encouraged and strengthened thinking about God's love for you. And that it doesn't stay there, that then you begin to reflect upon just the fact that, oh, I, I just want someone else, I want everyone else to experience this kind of love. And so how we're going to close this morning is how we're going to be closing for the next number of weeks. We are going to be spending moments, not just worshiping, but before we worship, spending some time in quiet reflection over what we've just learned. And there will be some promptings that will appear on the screen as the band plays. And I want you to spend just a few moments every week reflecting on, praying through, thinking about what it means to be. And today... It's the bride of Christ.